Um, it's eight o'clock, so I think we can start now. Are we ready to go? Excellent. Please make yourself comfortable when you're sitting down, either to sit meditation or uh, hear a Dhamma talk. I know that that's something which is a basic part of meditation, which many people forget. That's almost uh, in the teachings of the Buddha. That would be the first thing which you uh, decide upon when you start meditating to get a quiet place and to get a comfortable posture. And that's one of the reasons why we do have chairs here, we do have cushions, we do have all sorts of things which you can help to make sure that your body's comfortable. And even the chairs to let you know that when we built this meditation center about 14 years ago, that when we got the chairs, I also went to the shop to try them out to make sure that they were chairs which were suitable for meditation. You might think that an armchair would be nice, especially with little buttons on them so you can warm them up if it's too hot and give you a little massage if you need a massage. Sometimes when you start thinking like that, you get all, all these fantasies about upmarket meditation cushions. I suggested this for many years, and I'm surprised that all the people in Singapore, you haven't made use of this as a business opportunity. High-tech meditation cushions, these ones we have over here, how old are they? It's been around for, for decades. Imagine a high-tech meditation cushion, different compartments with remote control, so if you need to sort of lift up your butt, the backside, you can press one button and the back of the meditation cushion just fills with air and makes it uh, higher. If you need something under your right leg or left leg, you can push something else and that will lift up. If it's a bit sore, you can have a massage. Cold and heat, you can order that. And also, if you have sloth and torpor, which is a common condition when people start the meditation retreat, you can press another button and you get a, a cappuccino or flat white or whatever it is, so you don't need to get up to, <laughs> to go and get a cup of coffee. High-tech meditation cushions. <laughs> but we don't have any of those here yet. <laughs> but nevertheless, you have chairs. And in those chairs, they are, if it's too high for you, then you put a cushion underneath your feet. If it's too low for you, you put the cushion underneath your bottom. In other words, you adjust its height with cushions so that your feet can be comfortable. And indeed, at the beginning of the meditation, I ask you to make sure you have some mindfulness on your own body to start off with. If you have some mindfulness on your own body, you can find out what is a good posture for you. You don't always have to sit full lotus on broken glass for hours and hours and hours. Sometimes people forget that asceticism might be impressive to mm. others. 
but it was the first teaching the Buddha gave to avoid such asceticism and find a comfortable middle way where you can sit at ease. And when you can sit at ease, your body can relax and become peaceful and even disappear, just like your mind. That can become peaceful, comfortable and start to disappear too. Only through that kind of relaxation. And for those of you who don't know or keep forgetting the story of the Buddha, one of the things which I emphasize is that for so many years he was trying to become enlightened through lots of effort. And through that loss of effort, you know, through fasting, fasting, through just uh, hardly sleeping, all that effort, he didn't get anywhere. And that's when he remembered a time as a young child, seven-year-old, when his father was busy doing a ceremony. <coughs> and he was watching while he was sitting under the shade of a rose apple tree. And there sitting, just a young seven-year-old. Seven-year-olds don't strive that much. Have any of you got seven-year-old kids? Have you ever noticed a seven-year-old striving? Seven-year-olds, they can know how to relax, though. So the seven-year-old kid was relaxing under the rose apple tree and almost spontaneously entered one of these first jhanas, these deep meditations. And he was very peaceful and happy like that. And that's, he rejected that for many years when he started his spiritual pursuits. He rejected it because he thought it was too comfortable, too beautiful, thinking how can you attain anything through a path of peace and joy. And having tried everything else, he realized that was not just worth a try. This was in one of the suttas, the Mahasachika Sutta of Majjhima That's where he said, well, maybe this is the path to Sambodhi, to enlightenment. And the insight came up, yes, this is that path to enlightenment. It is not enlightenment, it's the path, the way. But the reason I'm mentioning this was because the next insight which came up to him, it's not easy with a body so uh, tired, so unfed, unwashed, unslept. It's hard to get those deep meditations when the body is in a very weak state. So that's when he gave up many of the ascetic parts of the practice, rested, washed, ate, and his first five disciples abandoned him. The first five disciples considered, well, if you know, our teacher, the Siddhartha Gautama, can't get enlightened by all those ascetic practices, how on earth is he going to get anywhere by eating and sleeping and washing? They thought he'd given up the practice. 
but of course we all know that that was an important part of his ability, of possibility, to get into deep meditation, which he did, and from there became fully enlightened. I'm just going to mention, because this is again very rarely spoken about, that once he did emerge from those deep meditations, then the Buddha practiced what we call the three insights. You know what those three insights are? Called Tewija. Not many people describe them as insights. The three knowledges, three insights. And the first insight which the Buddha practiced after emerging from the jhanas at Bodhgaya, sitting under the Bodhi tree, was the recollection of his previous lives. That is a real insight. And once he could recall his previous lives, which is not that hard to do if you emerge from a deep meditation, and from a jhana, that's why for those of you who want to know how, just as you're emerging, you just ask yourself, what is my earliest memory? And if your mind is ready, if it is free of the hindrances, these memories will come up. And you can just go even earlier to all sorts of past memories. And you may think that, well, am I just imagining these memories? These days, there are so many records in libraries. It's not that hard to go to those libraries and check out whether a person of such a name in such a place, such an age, actually just did live. Can you imagine how spooky that is? If you go there, go to the library and you find the name of your previous life there with all the records, exactly what you expected. And that's actually there. And I mention this example because one is one of these Australian, Australians uh, he works for the Naval, Naval Reserve, at least he used to. And he was, actually he was a Naval officer before. And the last sort of person you'd expect to be like a spiritual guru or anything. But he did some regression, remember his past life, checked it out, it was real. And as a result of that, the reason why I encourage it the result of actually seeing his previous life, even he saw where he was buried, a tombstone with his name on, that was him in underneath. I think that's pretty spooky, but the most important part of that, he said once I could recall that without any doubt at all, he had to keep the five precepts. There was no choice anymore when he understood you know, the truth of rebirth for himself, not by just logic or reason, just because he could remember clearly his previous life. And he had to start keeping the five precepts. He just couldn't take a drink of alcohol anymore, just couldn't do it. That's one of the fascinating examples and consequences of somebody who can recall past life. It's an insight which has effect in your life. And anyway, the next two insights were 
the insight into um, karma, why we get reborn like this, why we have to keep going through these problems again and again and again. And having seen how karma works, how it really works, and little things about karma, which some of the things which I emphasize for each one of you, you're not a prisoner of karma in the sense you have to endure the results of all those bad deeds in the past. We always think negative like that, don't we? We never say, have to enjoy the results of all the good deeds. But it, sometimes we feel we're a prisoner of that karma. But once you understand how it works, it is absolutely possible with wisdom to be able to let go, if you like, to forgive any bad deeds of the past, almost any bad deeds. When I first saw that teaching, that was description of being a stream winner. A stream winner is no longer subject to rebirth in the lower realms. It just cannot be done, no matter what they did. And how can that be? Because the Buddha always said, you can't escape from karma. No matter where you go, karma will find you. But you can have this amazing forgiveness with insight, which frees you of all the karma from the past. It's a powerful teaching. That's one of the reasons why that second insight of like the law of karma was, again, should be emphasized more often than, than it is. And the last of the insights was the, the real big one about how to let go of suffering totally. See the cause, when that cause is removed, the effect cannot come into uh, fruition. You're free. So anyway, those are three insights, but the main reason I got into this this morning was to say that those type of insights, even the deep meditations are so beautiful, they'll only arise if you are reasonably comfortable. You don't have to be totally fit and healthy, but you have to be reasonably comfortable, which is one of the reasons why if you think, oh no, this retreat, I'm going to just bear with this, push through it, yeah, my knees are aching, but what the heck? I'm a sort of uh, serious Buddhist. I'm just going to endure it no matter what. That's one of the things I was very fortunate to overcome when I was a young lay person. I went to my first Waysack ceremony when I was a student at Cambridge, and I was so inspired. I was inspired because they said about the story of the Buddha... He crossed his legs under the Bodhi tree and he made his resolution. I am not going to move from this position until either I'm fully enlightened or else all the blood in my arteries and veins dries up and my bones turn to dust enlightenment or bust. Now, I don't know about you, but in Western culture especially, sometimes that's really attractive. 
I was a busy young man, had lots to do in my life. I wanted to get enlightenment out of the way as soon as I could, so I can go and get married and enjoy myself. I had no idea what enlightenment was. <laughs> so after that Waysack talk, I remember going back to my room and getting a nice cushion to sit on. And I made that resolution. I am not going to move from this seat until I am fully enlightened. Not just a stream win or once return, I'd go for broke. Or my blood has all dried up and my bones have turned to dust. In those days, I could manage 20 minutes if I was lucky meditating. <laughs> that afternoon or evening, I got to about 35 minutes or 40 minutes. My body was on fire with pain. My legs were aching, my back was aching, my ears, everything was aching. And I opened my eyes and I realised I was not enlightened. And also, my blood was still wet. <laughs> my bones were still there. Just making a resolution like that was not good enough. There was no wisdom there. Just that asceticism is often without wisdom. There's also something basically wrong with such asceticism. To get into deep meditations, to get to understand your own body and your own mind, you have to spend time with it. Not training it, but understanding it. And that simile should become very clear when any of you who listen to sutta classes or read suttas, find that the enemy number one for a meditator is this person they call Mara. And how this Mara, this like tempter, he's actually the one who's in charge of this heavenly realm which control other people's creations the Paranimata Wasawati realm. He's basically, just to say it in brief, the control freak in chief of the universe. When anybody becomes out of control, out of his control, gets incredibly worried. And how do the monks and nuns in the time of the Buddha and now how do they overcome Mara? As a Westerner, you think, kick butt. Attack Mara. Fight Mara. That's not how you defeat Mara. Not even using loving kindness. You defeat Mara by wisdom. I know you, Mara. And once you do know what this Mara is, this control is, then Mara always walks away. The nun knows me, the monk knows me. It's defeated through wisdom, 
not through force. And that always impressed me because a lot of time when I was trying to defeat Mara, I would use force. I did make adva- take advantage of that teaching, I know, because growing up in, as a young monk in northeast Thailand, every moon night we had to stay up all night meditating, no sleep. And that was once a week. And that was tough. Sometimes I got some really nice meditation, but a lot of time you got very sleepy. So a couple of times, uh, instead of just sitting there nodding, a couple of times I went back to my hut. And I thought I'd only take an hour's rest. What happens when you're resting? You don't know what time it is and you wake up early in the morning. You fall fast asleep. And when other monks would come up to me and said, where were you? You weren't in the hall doing the meditation all night. I would answer, well look, I considered, who am I? I'm just a young Western monk. And Amara could defeat so many great monks in the time of the Buddha. Who am I to put up a resistance to Mara? It was actually such a good argument that I remember many other monks using that. (laughs) So please don't use that here. (laughs) You don't fight Mara. You can't defeat Mara through fighting. You defeat by understanding. If you're tired, why are you tired? You're tired because you just arrived after a long journey. It's the nature of your body to be tired sometimes. Sometimes you're inspired. That's the other wonderful thing. Have you ever had those nights or evenings you don't even feel like going to bed or going to sleep? You're just full of energy. That sometimes happens. And that might happen to you in a place like this. In the evening time you're inspired, maybe by a nice Q&A session or a talk, it really pushes the buttons and you really get inspired. There's sometimes a few talks which I heard and you cry. It's gorgeous, it's beautiful, inspiring. And then you go and meditate and it's so easy to meditate. The mind gets very still, energized, powerful mindfulness, a lot of bliss. No way you can go to sleep. You don't mind sitting all night. Not because you have to, because you like to. And that's actually so different than when you put forth effort into it. Don't put forth effort, don't fight the defilements. Understand them. And through knowledge, understanding, that's where you defeat the defilements, not through force. This is one of the the mistakes which people make. Because there's many things in your life, especially in the worldly life, where through hard effort, and really putting your attention on the study, on the hard work, that gives you success in life. But meditation is a different game. Meditation, you get success 
amazing success through developing of understanding and wisdom. So that's one of the first things to understand that when you meditate, understand your body, understand your mind. What does it say in the Chinese art of war? I, I don't like saying the Chinese art of war. Maybe better the, the art of conflict, because we're all in conflict sometimes with our defilements. Thousand battles. No, know your enemy. Know yourself. Thousand battles fought. Thousand battles won. Even do you know your enemy in meditation? Do you know who you are and how you work? If those questions are both answered in the affirmative yes, then whatever you do to meditate, you will always have success. You know what the problem is. You know how much you can do. You know when you need a rest. You know when you don't need a rest. You know when you need some more to eat. You don't need so much to eat. You know when to exercise and when you have had enough exercise. You understand your body, you understand your mind. When you can do things like that, it does mean that getting to know your body, getting to know your mind, becomes both important and also enjoyable. Many years ago, when I went to visit UK, it was for a little bit of a reunion uh, with my old college friends. And one of those college friends, he couldn't come to the main reunion, so just emailed him, and we were going to meet at Victoria um, Station, the bus station in Victoria, in London. And you know, we were really good friends when we were at college, so he was there waiting for me. hadn't seen him for such a long time. And he could recognise him. His name was Harold. I won't tell you his surname, because his nickname was Flash. You know, Harold, Flash Harry. And when I saw him, I said, Ah, oh, Flash, how are you? And he said, Please. Don't use that name. Because the story behind it, one of the parties in Cambridge at the time, he got drunk, went to the toilet, and came out of the toilet without his pants on. <laughs> and all the sort of our friends, including the girlfriends, saw him, and that name stuck to him for all the time he was at Cambridge. Flash Harry. But nevertheless, no, he's done, re done really well for himself. He became the head actuary. That's like an a insurance genius in the whole of Europe. He said, don't use that name. <laughs> I'll probably lose my job. I'll certainly lose my reputation. But of course, it was the friendship we had which was really shocked me, surprised me. That I was supposed to go to a Adana, where the monks eat, at a Sri Lankan restaurant just next to Victoria. They were going to offer me my food that day, and I asked him if he can come too. Yes. 
I spent all the time talking with him, catching up. <coughs> After the lunch, we still hadn't finished talking. So we went together on the underground for Victoria to Wimbledon, where I was going to give the talk at the Thai Temple that night. And we are talking all the way. And when we got to the temple, we carried on talking. It was only the monks said, look, you've got to give a talk to the people gathered to hear you now, so you better shut up. And so that was the only thing which could stop us talking. And that surprised me. Just the really good friends, how you could talk effortlessly, with interest, for hours. I don't usually do that. And that gave me the wonderful simile of how your mind works and mindfulness. Have you ever had problems, say, doing things like watching your mind when you're meditating just for an hour? Why is it your mind wanders off somewhere or goes to sleep or thinks of anything, which is usually rubbish stuff, rather than watching your, your own mind? You understand why? because you're not friendly enough to your own mind. You've got a bad relationship with your mind. Always trying to control it. Trying to judge it. Trying to, it's not good enough. Those of you again who have kids, always trying to encourage your kids to do better at school or in life. And sometimes your kids, they really get fed up with you. Whatever they do, it's not good enough. And it's true, you can always do better, but it's good enough. And so because of that, it's like you understand this unfriendliness you have to people you love. Especially unfriendliness to yourself. The unfriendliness to your own body and your own mind. Are you kind to your own mind? If it spent the next six or seven days sleeping or getting on the internet and watching stupid internet stuff, would you feel bad about yourself? <laughs> At least you're honest. <laughs> um, okay. I'm, sometimes people get offended when I tell true stories about myself. But this was one of those stories which meant a lot to me. And I don't mind sharing it with monks and nuns, but sharing with lay people, sometimes people say, don't, don't talk about that sort of stuff. In my sixth year as a monk, I've been 49 years as a monk now. Next year is my 50th year as a bhikkhu, fully ordained monk. <coughs> and so the Buddhist Society of Western Australia were thinking about what can we get you for your 50th anniversary as a monk? A gold watch? I said, no, we're not allowed to accept gold. We're supposed to be free of time. <laughs> You get nothing, I don't want anything. But anyway, it's only six years as a monk. So I thought I was pretty stable. But I found this monastery in the north of Thailand. 
it was idyllic. One of the reasons it was idyllic for a monk who came from UK, England, it was in the middle of a tea plantation. <laughs> all around there were tea bushes all over the place and very high trees as well. So I had as much tea as I needed, actually more than I needed. And also there were caves there, beautiful caves. And in the hot weather, I used to go in that cave after my breakfast in the morning and not come out till the afternoon. And a wonderful time in that cave. And of course, being a limestone cave in the north of Thailand, there were lots of bats in there. And to this day, I tell all the monks and nuns this, and you, there's one of the the fragrances, which I really like, is bat shit. <laughs> if I smell bat poo, it's delightful. And the reason is because it's been associated now with those wonderful months in these caves of, in northeast Thailand. I said I was in the north of Thailand. And also, one of my favorite similes, which you've heard so many times, originated from there. How many times have I said, if you tread in the bat, no, no, the dog poo, you tread in the dog poo, never scrape it off your shoes, take it home with you and scrape it off in the garden and your durian or mangoes or papaya will be sweeter than ever before. And I mentioned papaya because in the main cave where I used to spend hours in meditation, there was a papaya tree. And that papaya tree would get fertilized by the thousands of bats as they flew into the cave and the thousands of bats as they flew out afterwards. And that papaya tree was so incredibly juicy and sweet, by far the most delicious papaya I've ever tasted, ever, in my existence. And as a monk, you can't ask for food. So what I used to do, when I saw this one of the papayas was ready to serve, they just started going red enough, I knew if I waited another day, the birds would eat it. So I'd take one of the lay supporters and said, oh, look at that papaya up there. Look how ripe that looks. <laughs> That's as far as I could go. And they were smart enough to get it down for me and I'd eat the whole thing. That's how delicious it was. That is actually where the dog poo simile came from from that papaya tree uh, fertilized by bat poo. But anyhow, I had some wonderful meditations there, wonderful experiences, but also you had your problems as well. In that monastery, I was the only monk there, had the whole monastery to myself, and it was easy to maintain. 
The food, one meal a day there, was more than enough. Had all this time. And then one period during the rains, rainy season retreat, my mind started to wander so badly. It started to think of what I call these days unmonkish thoughts. I think you all know, I, I love being a monk. Even when I first ordained as a monk, I, had, I would wake up in the middle of the night in Bangkok with nightmares. But my nightmares were in the dreams I thought I was a layperson. I'd open my eyes in the middle of the night and see next to my bed on the floor were my robes neatly folded. And the feeling was, ah, I'm a monk. Yes, I made it. I was so happy. I'm not exaggerating. And I closed my eyes and continued in a nice peaceful sleep. And that nightmare, because that's what woke me up, actually continued for about four or five nights in a row. It was just almost telling me just how much I love this role. And even when I was a young monk, people said, how long are you going to be a monk for? And I say forever, oh yeah. They never believed me. But one of the most, call it difficult times, I don't call it difficult, I call it really a huge amount of wisdom came from this. And when I started having unmonkish thoughts, I was still young at the time, only 28, 29. I had a good degree, lots of prospects in my life. I was young, fit, handsome. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not. We actually got photographs of me when I was young. So anyway, the <laughs> these thoughts started coming up. I wonder what she's doing, one of my ex-girlfriends. I wonder if she's still available. No, come on, stop it. <laughs> and I wanted to go back to my breath. And I started watching my breath again. And then another thought came up. She may be, you know, no, stop it. What about the other girl? What about other girls in the world? And I started having all these fantasies. And I really tried to stop them, but I couldn't. And they got worse and worse day after day on this very bad week. See, we shouldn't call it a bad week. But I was struggling very hard. Because I was on my own, you can't, there's no telephones or anything there. So because I was on my own, I was just getting more and more crazy. And I came to like a crisis point. So I went down to the shrine, there was a big Buddha statue there, about three times, and I said, help. So I was, you know, sometimes you're in meditation, thinking too much, it's like you're going crazy. And when I said help, the insight which came up was to do a deal. That's how Westerners respond, do a deal. And the deal was, my mind would behave and watch the breath for most of the day, but I give myself 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. every afternoon. Where my mind was allowed to think anything it wanted to. The weirdest, most depraved, sexual, depraved fantasies, 
I would not stop you as long as it's 3 to 4 p.m. every afternoon. I thought that was fair. The rest of the day you behave. Did it work? Much better than you can ever expect. Most of the day my mind was all over the place as usual, probably getting even worse. But the weird thing was, I share this with you, this is where Mara is overcome through understanding, not through wisdom. From 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. So under, Mara is overcome through understanding, not through force. From 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. I sat down, leant against the wall to relax. Whatever you want to think about mind, you can now. And you kind of got shocked. The next hour, my mind watched every breath without missing one. No effort, no distractions, no weird thoughts. When I tried, I was going crazy. When I stopped trying, I was kind to my mind. It watched every breath easily. That's where I get being a friend to your mind. When you're a friend to it, it doesn't need to do all the stupid stuff. It's like my mind was throwing a tantrum. Watch your breath. No, said the mind. Come on, just watch your breath. No way, I'll watch something else. <laughs> but when I said, whatever you'll need to watch, you can watch. Okay, I'll watch the breath. <laughs> you may, that's a, it's a hard thing to explain, but that's pretty much the way things are. Because we don't have friendliness to our own mind, especially when we're meditating, we're still trying to train it we still you know, hate it or want to criticize it or punish it if it doesn't do the right thing. It means that our mind and, and ourselves have got a bad relationship. So if you're kind to your mind, I really mean that, then the mind doesn't need to wander off. What are the defilements anyway? Things like greed. Why do you want something more? A lot of times in the meditation you have peace. Isn't this good enough? Now I want jhanas. Yeah, okay, so you get jhana. I want second jhana. That's not enough. I got that last year. Third jhana, please. I want to become a stream winner. Only a stream winner, come on. Okay, once returner. <laughs> I want psychic powers. You know there's no end of things to want. But every time you aspire for those things, want them, you're blocking them. Just be kind to your mind, be a good friend to it, get to understand it. And then your mind will stay with you. It won't go anywhere. The idea of like a wandering mind. Wandering mind, what the heck is that? Even this is something which I mentioned, which is important. I travel a lot. 
Do I? In a week or two's time, going an aircraft all the way over to UK to help at Venerable Chandra's monastery. When you go in a plane, you say, is that tiring? Not really, because I never fly anywhere. I go in the aircraft and sit down, and the plane does all the work. I just sit down and relax. I don't fly anywhere. I close my eyes. When I open them again, I'm in a different country. When people ask me, said, are you going to be here next week? Yeah, I'm always here. Just here happens to be a different place from time to time. Sometimes here is Singapore, sometimes here is Jana Grove, sometimes here is Sydney. But I'm always here. Are you always here? <laughs> of course you are, if you know how to be mindful. So you're at peace. You don't need to wander anywhere. Wherever your mind goes, you go with it. You don't stop it and stay here and the mind goes somewhere else. Wherever the mind is, that's where you are. Can you call that a wandering mind? And be kind and at ease to that mind. When you're kind to that mind, the mind is happy to be with you. When it's happy to be with you, you're just sitting here just watching your mind all day. What else can you do? It's not a training. It's the natural effect of loving kindness towards your own mind. Relaxation. That's one of the reasons why the, one of my sayings is always, please learn how to relax to the max. Sometimes people just thought that was just a joke or just like a slogan. Relax to the max. And I have to keep emphasizing just how profound that statement is, and how that can describe the whole Eightfold Path, especially the part where we meditate. Do you know how to relax to the max? So your body feels so loose. It's one of the things which I do in meditation, at the beginning, relaxing my body to the max. Sometimes you don't need to lay down. Laying down is, for me anyway, it's not that relaxing a posture. That's one of the reasons why you lay down, you have to turn later on. But sitting down, cross-legged, to me that's the, one of the most relaxed postures you can possibly have. You know, you feel your butt, you feel your legs, you put it in a nice position. And my back is usually nice to be straight relax the muscles in the shoulders, make sure that fingers feel okay, and relaxing all the muscles in the front of the face. When the muscles in the front of the face relax, you can feel it. Mindfulness allows you to have feedback, and when those muscles in the front of the face relax, a lot of the negative emotions vanish too. 
One of the things which I never expect, but which is true, and I encourage you to inquire about this, when your body is that relaxed, even if you're an old guy like me, then your body feels so comfortable. You get what I call the joy of relaxation. It's something real. You can feel the body feels just delightful. And at first I thought, monks aren't supposed to enjoy anything. At least that's what you tell me. But of course, when you relax to the max and feel that physical pleasure of relaxation throughout the whole body, I notice that that takes you to a deeper level of relaxation. It does not need to feel afraid of it. You learn how to relax your body so well, your health improves enormously. I don't usually have many health problems, but during the rains retreats, one acute problem, in other words, not long-lasting. I was having my lunch, and I think I coughed and swallowed at the same time, and a piece of food got stuck in my esophagus. I could still breathe, I could still talk, but you know the path down to my tummy was totally blocked. So I couldn't even drink any water. You know, you drink some water and it comes straight out again. And one thing which I was very careful with is not telling anybody. It's, it's hopeless. If I tell anybody that there's something wrong with me, oh my, that's amazing. They just get so worried and concerned that they become the problem, not me. So please excuse me when I do this. I don't tell anybody. And then what happens is that you know, after giving some instructions to people, which was amazing, I could even do that, I went to my room, my cave, and just meditated. And you can actually see just when you do learn how to relax to the max, even though you're, you know, the tummy was obviously really thirsty, because nothing could go through. And then after relaxing so much, of course, what happened was the muscles in the esophageal tract, or whatever it's called, they eventually relaxed, and when they relaxed, then the food could actually come out. And that's just the end of the problem. But it was amazing that once that had happened, it was you know, cured from meditation. Because of its cure through meditation, at that time, my mind was really peaceful, very still, and very joyful. So I remember just after once, after it was the food had come out, and I had my first uh, glass of water. Never in my life had I drunk water which was so pure and sweet. Normal water, which I drink every day, but because the awareness was strong, it was delicious water, and that really stood out. So what is happening is when you learn about your body and understand it, it's amazing how you can keep it healthy. Many people keep on telling me I should look after my body. 
You're so selfish. <laughs> they want to keep, keep track of my body, make sure it's healthy, so I can come and serve you again and 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 again. And again, and again. Just like, remember when the tsunami hit? One of the monks at the time, I was in Penang at the time. So they were ringing around Penang. How's Ajahn Brahm? Is he okay? Did he survive? And of course, you know, they didn't know where exactly I was, what telephone number. Eventually they found me and they said, oh yeah, he's fine, no trouble. And when they told me that this monk was calling up so many times to try and find out how I was, I was kind of touched. I never realized you cared for me so much. And the other monk said, actually, to be honest, it's not that we care for you. I was the second monk. If you died, I'd have to take over. That's why I was very relieved. <laughs> well, you, you survived, no trouble. <laughs> but the relaxing to the max, it's amazing just how many opportunities it gives you to learn how to survive all sorts of things which would kill other people. Learning just how to understand your body, understand your mind, and all these defilements which might come up, you understand how they disappear. Simple things like how to let go all that stuff in the past, your friends, relations, loved ones, difficult times of our life, how can we let them go? This is what you learn, you understand the body, you understand the mind. And you can let go of anything. So easy. Through wisdom. What a wonderful thing that is to learn which means that just in the middle of all sorts of crises, you can sit down there and be quiet. And even though people do bang the doors in your cottage, especially when they're trying to get to the, uh, the morning chanting. <laughs> I have my spies <laughs> in this retreat. No, please, it doesn't matter being late for the chanting. You don't have to be on time, but just be quiet. When you get up, get up quietly. Get up like a ghost. No one hears you. Open the doors like James Bond on a, a mission so no one can even notice that you've left your bedroom and open the doors and you close it just so silently. So please do that. Learn from that. And that kindness for other beings teaches you how to be kind to your own body and mind. So you can sit down and say, watch your breathing, as if the mind doesn't get disturbed. You're just watching. That's his home. And it loves being with you. And then it becomes delightful. The delightful mindfulness. That's, I keep on calling that the pivot point of meditation. You're sitting down, 
your eyes close. The breath comes to you and it's gorgeous. If you see it, I don't know how many of you saw the almost full moon when you went back to your hut last night. You can't miss it, it's gorgeous. It's so, it's so much there, you just want to stay there and see it for as long as you possibly can. It's like your breath. It's like the full moon. It's beautiful. You just watch it. It draws you in. You don't force your mind onto it. And that's actually how the meditation works. So I better uh, stop now because it's uh, close to nine o'clock. And I don't know about you, but every time I give a talk, I always wind myself up. So I didn't sleep much last night, but nevertheless, I can still give a talk. I hope you enjoyed it. If you didn't, I'm not going to start again. <laughs> okay, now this is the three big sadhus this time. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> okay, and so uh, just I clarified this afternoon's uh, schedule, and basically this afternoon's schedule losing one. Yeah. So in other words, no suitor class this afternoon, no interviews, no, no lunch. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have a nice lunch together. So please take a rest if you need a rest. And also, even though uh, there'll be nothing formal here, you can always come in here to meditate for any time, but please, if you come here to meditate, don't bang the doors and don't talk in here. And you should also emphasize that you have these beautiful rooms. They're like caves. So you can go in there and meditate there. In your room, you have the solitude. You have the toilets right next door. So you can sit in there as much as you wish. And even just do walking meditation in there, slow walking. The rooms should be well used. Not just the bed, but the space outside the bed. To sit, to walk, have a very peaceful time. Is that okay for you? Okay, great. Okay.